0: All right, well, hey folks, uh, this is John, and we're here in Orlando at the American Association for Nurse Anesthetists Annual Congress with Caleb Rogavin, a CRNA specializing in trauma care and education from Temple University in Philadelphia, PA. Caleb has spent years teaching and presenting on trauma care, and uh, we just actually wrapped up his talk um, here at the conference on um, an update in trauma care and some of the um, interesting things about the different you know, drugs and techniques that are being used right now in fluid management and resuscitation. So we'll, uh, we're here to chat trauma with Caleb today. Caleb, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, tell us about your experience. I think you have a unique experience. You have a, a mm-hmm. wealth of experience in uh, your nursing career prior to anesthesia. Right. And you also have almost 20 years as a CRNA. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, it, actually, I'm very happy with it. I started
1: my career, as soon as I graduated nursing school, I moved to Dallas, Texas, and I was a critical care trauma nurse intern at Parkland Hospital in Dallas. This set the stage for my entire career, and I think it's one of the reasons why I'm actually a really good CRNA also. Um, So I've been all trauma all the time. From the day I started taking care of patients, I only worked in a critical care unit. I don't know how to take care of six medical patients on the floor. I couldn't do that, that would be a challenge for me. But give me a sick trauma patient or an open heart, at that time, that was my favorite thing. So it was a wonderful, wonderful background and training um, and set the full foundation. I could do anything after I finished the internship. I could take care of an open heart, a neurosurgical patient, a trauma, general surgery, hemodialysis, resuscitation in the ER. It was just very well-rounded. So I used that um, and my love for trauma to sort of um, go around the country a little bit. So I worked at the trauma center of the South Pacific. I worked in Honolulu for a year in their trauma ICU at the Queens Medical Center, and that was a blast. I worked night shift, so I played all day and took care of sick Hawaiian trauma patients at night. It was a great experience. And then I have a whole bucket list and some of the places I've made it to. I went to Baltimore Shock Trauma, as a staff nurse in their neurocritical care unit. And then I went to graduate school there at the University of Maryland. So I have a master's degree in trauma critical care. And the focus was education and to be basically a clinical nurse specialist. So I used it as an education role and I actually went back to the Parkland Hospital in Dallas with a master's degree as an advanced practice nurse for a year and I enjoyed it very much, but sometimes it's hard to go home. It's not exactly the same when you were there the first time or as the new guy. So I started to branch out and look for some more specific trauma jobs where I moved actually to Minnesota. And the job was wonderful. I was a trauma nurse clinician, but it became more and more administrative. So as I got farther away from the patient clinical side, I realized I wasn't happy. So at that point I decided what is it that I should do so I looked all around and my friend, my best friend in the whole world who I trained at Parkland with is a nurse anesthetist already and he said to me, why don't you go to anesthesia? I thought, oh, it was sort of like I could have had a V8. <laughs> so I banged my head, I was like, what? So in Minnesota, I applied to a program that I really liked, the Minneapolis VA. It's now the University of Minnesota program. And that was it, I was hooked. It was a wonderful, wonderful program. I enjoy being a student. The program director was very adult learning centered. Mm-hmm. So I actually worked it out where she worked it out for me to go to Baltimore Shock Trauma as a student nurse anesthetist. Oh, that's great. So I got to spend six weeks at a place I knew, but in the anesthesia role. And from that moment on, it was, that was it. So after I graduated, I wanted to go to another trauma center in Chicago. I went to Cook County. And all the stories you hear about Cook County are absolutely true. Um, I worked in the old Cook County Hospital, which was sort of scary. They have a brand new one now, which is pretty, um, but it was a great experience. The trauma was amazing, mostly penetrating trauma there. Um, And in Baltimore, it's shock trauma, it's mostly blunt trauma. So I now sort of had a feel for both types. I stayed at Cook County for a while and then I got the itch to try something else. And from there I moved somewhere. I'll tell you in a minute when I remember. (laughs) So, oh, I know. It's been a long road. That's right. I went to San Francisco General Hospital, which is the only level one trauma center in San Francisco. And it was wonderful there. It was a great practice, great trauma. I'm probably one of just a handful of CRNAs who can say that they took care of a Golden Gate Bridge jumper. That's fascinating. And one reason why is because most of them don't survive or found or make it to the hospital. But the ones that do, I was there at the right place at the right time. So that was really cool. Great experience, great teamwork. And then I decided I was very interested in the education role in anesthesia. And I got a call from a colleague where I did my master's in trauma at the University of Maryland. So they were starting a nurse anesthesia program. The opportunity was perfect. I went there as the assistant director, helped start the program, got the first class going. Um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. So some things changed in my life, you know, family, and you get older, and it was time to go back home to Philadelphia. So I now am a clinician at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia, where I'm a full-time clinician, and I lecture in um, programs
0: in Philadelphia to the students, and it's, uh, I love it. That's awesome. Well, it sounds like you've had a, a very long and colorful career in trauma. Yes. Yeah. That's yes. fantastic. And, and quite a lot of speaking engagements as well, it seems like with in both between. the ANA and hmm. schools and Yes. Conferences and I've been that. very fortunate where my
1: style is, I, I need to impart knowledge. You have to walk away with some information, but <laughs> I, and I hate when people say, Oh, you know, I'm a really funny guy or, Oh, I can tell a joke. I never say that because then you're, then you die. But my presentation style is one of storytelling, um, self-deprecation, you have to take it on the chin because we all have. And sometimes when you tell a story about, in the lecture I gave today, I talked about dumping urine and you know, there's, there's no urine in that urimeter. There's one CC and it's the dissolved lubricant. Yeah, sure. But you're dumping and you pretend you're actually dumping and you write down 25 CCs. Yeah, just but, to get something
0: in, y- right? Because you,
1: I mean, you have to. And everyone laughed. And I thought, you're laughing because you've all done it. You've exactly. all thought. And if you haven't, you thought about doing it if you're yeah. a student. So that's how I tried to relay and parlay information. There's no stress. Trauma in itself, when you, someone's life is, is truly in your hands, when they're dying in front of you and the team is working, you have to keep it light. Mm-hmm. You have to keep it light so that you can think clearly, work as a team, communicate effectively, and that, that is really how I practice. The way that people, I say some off color things and I'm, I'm very professional in the clinical area, but this, my basic personality shines through this way and that's how I also make my therapeutic bond with the patient. Yeah. Um, it's nice so if you just have a regular patient coming in for a scheduled lap coli, you can bond with them and I bond with them the same way. When you have 30 seconds with a critically ill trauma patient who is in extremis or just very nervous because they're not supposed to be there right now, you can win them over very carefully, very quickly and carefully. And that's how I, that's how I truly practice. Yeah. I treat everyone the same and I take care of, I take care of bad people. When you work in trauma, people who get shot are not nice people most of the time. Unfortunately, I never get the, the person, the nice one person who got shot, I get the shooter or. The police shot me as I was running away after I, whatever. And so, you don't judge them; you just take care of them. And so that's how I, uh, well, as I'm going along, I treat them like everybody else. How's that?
0: Right. And well, I appreciate yeah. your I appreciate your mentality though about keeping it light. In that, not only is just a. I'm sure as a lifestyle choice just in trauma care, seeing, seeing that amount of trauma in other people's lives, you've got to find ways to cope with that as a provider. But I think even specifically, you got to find a way to perform as a provider and, and keeping a light attitude helps you have a clear mind, helps you make good decisions. And certainly you know, timely, critical thinking and quality decision making in a trauma situation is of the utmost importance. You, you, ju- you really did just sum it up and that's exactly correct.
1: And when you have to actually toe the line, I can keep a straight face and I'm, I'm really bad about that sure. though. You know, I, I don't go to funerals because I'm the person who laughs. And I, seriously, I, in my family, I've gone to memorial services but I don't go to the funeral part because I laugh or I say, oh my God, look what she's wearing. Or, look at his hair, and you're not supposed to do that, you know? Right. Right. But that's how I am in the hospital, too. And with trauma, a lot of my patients, and when I say my patients, a lot of the patients that I am part of the caring for team die. And some of them are tragic. Some of them are young people. We get, as Temple's the big trauma center in Philadelphia, we get police officers, we get pedestrians who are truly, truly minding their own business, when they got hit by a drunk driver. And you feel it, it, it's sad, but one of the ways I, I deal with it is I keep it very light. I tell people how I feel, I tell a lot of jokes, some of them off color, but that's, that's how we do it in the operating room. Everyone who's listening knows this. So um, I don't go to funerals
0: and I go to the movies a lot and that's how I make that work for me. Nice, nice. It works. Well, speaking about that mentality and trauma, let's take uh, just a basic trauma case. So let's say you're on call in Philly, you're at Temple, it's 2.30 in the morning, and you get word that a trauma patient is coming in. It's a 45-year-old male involved in motorcycle versus SUV collision, and he was the guy on the bike. Uh, He's not intubated currently, but he probably needs to be. As a CRNA, what goes through your mind when you get that, you, you don't know anything else about the patient, it's just coming in, trauma patient, what goes through your mind?
1: Excellent. Um, this is something that I do on a, a routine basis. That little um, patient workup is exactly what I see on a regular basis on a Saturday at 2.30 in the morning. The first thing is, we're, because we do so much trauma, and that's what I do, we always have a trauma room set up. But we set it up at seven o'clock in the morning when we get there at the start of our shift and it's now 19 hours later. So as soon as we get the notification that this patient is coming up, when I say we because we have a whole anesthesia team but if it's gonna be my case, when I go in the room I put the, my stuff where I need it. So we, we have everything set up, we have different set of blades, so we have a MAC-3 and a MAC-4 and we have a straight blade available if you like that. We have different endotracheal tubes set up and ready. And then we draw up drugs at that time um, for induction. And we always have atomidate, and propofol. So the things that you're thinking of is when you're setting up your drugs, can I give this patient propofol? Are they an extremist? They're not intubated yet, so we're going to have to induce them And you start thinking of sort of that physiology of the trauma thing. Are they gonna become hypotensive? Are they hypotensive already? So you have that available. And then you have our standard setup. We have succinylcholine and a non-depolarizing agent, depending on what you use. And if the patient can tolerate it, we draw Versed and fentanyl. That's our standard drugs that we give initially. And then we have all the other toys around. We have an NG tube, and then we prepare for a major trauma case. We, we have the luxury of having a fluid warmer set up with anesthesia tubing. All our trauma rooms, we use Y-site tubing so you can plug your blood into the other side. And we have a level one infuser that's been run through and ready to go. And then we crack jokes and wait for them to come to the door and
0: then we go receive the patient. That's great, that's great. So you rattled off a few drugs, we could do, a whole podcast series on trauma patient inductions and airway management and that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, you mentioned Atomidate, Propofol, Fentanyl, Versed. Do you use ketamine much for your This is inducing? interesting. Um, it's sort of a geographical thing. And as
1: I've been all around the country at different trauma centers and um, dealing with the airway, the places I've been, ketamine is not one of our number one choices. It's, it's just how we do it. Uh, we tend to use more etomidate. So as we're getting already, ready, we, we have it available. We have a, at our institution, we have a Pixis anesthesia cart, and it's one of the substances we can get out very quickly. Sure.
0: Do you find yourself, I guess I, I could ask the question, any tidbits or tips for folks inducing a trauma patient that may be different than your typical scheduled lap coli induction? Absolutely, and that,
1: part of the thinking, and I guess what you the original question was, without getting too specific, what am I sort of thinking about? I am thinking about, I don't know what the patient looks like when they come in the room. I know they're not intubated. I don't really know what they're is going to look like. So we have available, and we actually do bring it in the room, is we we use um, a video laryngoscope. We have the glide scope mm-hmm. is our primary, we sort of call it the backup device, but we use it primarily a lot too. So we have that available if we think there's if the airway doesn't look good, then we use it. We still like to do standard laryngoscopy um, because it's good training and it's good practice because you might not always have right. uh, a toy, an airway toy to work with. Right. Some places it becomes a standard, all you use is that. So I do plan for that in advance. Um, what we're thinking through is what drug should we give and then we break all the rules. We will well, we'll just give a little and then we give them sucks. right right. and at first people go oh oh, i mean that's so humane inhumane and people who don't do traumas i we never give sucks oh they're gonna have horrible myalgia post-op no they're not they're gonna have an exploratory laparotomy scar and a chest tube and a broken bone they're not gonna worry about little muscle pain from shaking sure so not that we negate that if we could we would we if we have time we can load them up with other drugs and get them ready but sometimes you give just enough to sort of uh, get them dazed, and then we give them succinylcholine, and then we put the tube
0: in. Right, And in, in the in the motivation there being to avoid a precipitous drop in their in their blood pressure. Of course, because these folks are they're tanked, they're 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 running on catecholamines, mm-hmm. and you don't want to take that away through your anesthetic induction.
1: Exactly, and as we know, no matter what we do, pretty much you're going to take it away. So, anticip I'm not sure how to say the word anticip either anticipating or anticipatorily, there's my new word for the day. There you go. We will, at the same time, give them some phenylephrine. And I just used phenylephrine to start because most trauma patients are tachycardic. Uh And we're not sure, you might not know why, if they're hypovolemic or if it's catecholamine release or your femur is open, that would make my heart rate go up too. Right. So we can squeeze them a little bit until we can get a feel for where the volume status is and then rectify those situations. That's correct. Have volume available. You know, we use everything we use crystalloid and colloid resuscitation. And our, the focus now is we just give blood to everybody who needs it. If they're bleeding, they get blood. Right,
0: great. And are you finding that folks spend much time in the ERs or are they shooting straight through? If it's a trauma a surgical case, they're coming straight to the OR.
1: That is, that is one of the best questions that you can ask about trauma. And I addressed in a lecture that I had given on trauma resuscitation, it used to be they stayed down in the resuscitation unit. They got everything done. They had a Foley and a G G-tube, the chest tube was placed. They got blood given, and then they came to the OR. Now a patient can come up to the OR. They're not intubated, and they have one peripheral IV yeah. because they got a rapid exam. But what the patient doesn't need a Foley and an NG tube, what they need is an operation. Right. And they come up and then all that is done sort of in one minute. And then we cut them open and the surgeons take care of them. Yeah. And we do our part. So the days of, oh, there's a patient downstairs who's going to come up for an X lap. You have to run and get your room. That's why we set our rooms up in advance Mm -hmm. because you might have
0: 30 seconds, you might have 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. But no more than that. Mm Mm-hmm. So from an anesthesia perspective, what are your top priorities in trauma care? You know, people think, oh, trauma, this and that. It's very simple. Trauma is, and
1: I say this facetiously, but trauma is easy. Trauma is not rocket science. Trauma is A, B, C, airway, breathing, circulation. And that's the three letters that we're really good with. We establish an airway. We make sure that we're ventilating them and that becomes a trick sometimes with trauma patients mm-hmm. with lung injuries. And then C is we make sure they have the proper lines. If they didn't get them in the resuscitation area, we put them in and then we just follow A, B, and C for the case. What's wrong with them now? Oh, their blood pressure's low. They're bleeding, we give them blood products. Um, we use point of care testing. We send arterial blood gases on a routine basis and we can see where's their pH. Um, we get electrolytes. We give calcium. We replete those numbers, and we follow all that very carefully.
0: You talked today a lot about the use of massive transfusion protocols mm. as being a you know, central treatment modality to trauma patients. So tell us a little bit about those. You joked a little bit about you know, institutions that you've been at have kind of an algorithm for what a massive transfusion is, and you shared a case study that, you know, it became a massive, 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 just (laughs) based upon, I think it was, I think you said 147 units Uh, of various blood products were given to one patient over a a three and a half hour time period. Mm -hmm. That's quite different than the protocol that was set up as you know, 10 units in 24 hours or five units in three hours. So so there's variability, right, in trauma surgery and what massive transfusion means and that kind of stuff. But tell us a little bit about... um, that Massive Transfusion Protocols, what goes into them, their usefulness, where are we at as, as an anesthesia community in utilizing Massive Transfusion protocols? Sure. At, at all trauma centers now, pretty much, and I haven't called every single one of them,
1: but the ones that I have engaged, and then at, where I work, and the other places I've worked where we have MTPs, the Massive Transfusion Protocol, the Massive Transfusion Protocol itself is actually just a policy and a procedure and it states this is what we're gonna have, this is how we're gonna do it. So that everyone's on the same page, the blood bank, the trauma people, the resuscitation nurses, the perioperative nurses and anesthesia and then the critical care piece when the patient gets there if they do. So the current modern thinking is we do, basically we call it one to one to one. If you get one unit of pack red cells, you get one unit of FFP, and you get platelets. So what normally happens is platelets are pooled. So we give six units of, at my institution, ours is six pack red cells, six units of
0: FFP, and then a pooled pack of platelets. And these are running in concurrently? I mean, we, it's all going in. We're running them all in. How you, as quick as you can, you're getting that in. Right, and we can do it very
1: quickly now. The technology is such that, and we just happen to have a level one infuser from whatever company that is, that, and we use that, we also have the Belmont rapid infusion system and which is more controllable. You can tell it, give this much right now and it can give 500 milliliters in a minute through a large-bore IV or through a cord, if you can give more. So we're very in tune to that. So the massive transfusion protocol is, when I say the new big thing, it's the new future. Crystalloid does not, lactated ringers does not carry oxygen it leaks out of your interstitial space. It might work for a few minutes, you might make a cc or two of urine, ha, and then dump it and call it 25, but, and I always (laughs) throw that in. But what you need is you don't need lactated ringers or normal saline. What is falling out of your body is blood. Right. And what we used to do, which was a mistake, was we gave all packed cells, and then voodoo, the surgeon would say, oh, the patient's oozing, let's give some FFP. Well, they've already had 10 of packed cells, but we only get four units of FFP. Mm-hmm. So what's evolved and now turned into the MTP is that you need to give one-to-one. One. When you think about it, when you bleed, you don't bleed packed red cells. Right. You bleed blood. Whole blood. And many, many years ago when I was a brand new ICU nurse, one of the doctors said, why do we give packed cells? I want my patient to have a unit of whole blood. And when he explained it to me, I thought, wow, you know, that makes perfect sense. Why do we just pick out one component? Mm-hmm. So now, we're almost at the point where we're giving the whole thing back, and that's what's making a difference in the patient's outcome.
0: Right, and so, so six to six to one, and again, that one is, uh, is a pooled platelet pack, which I believe you described in your talk as it's like a traditional seven pack of platelets, mm-hmm. but instead of spiking every you know, seven bags of right. platelets and trying to get those in, so do they come from your blood bank as, as it's already pooled, or is that something you're doing in the OR? Already pooled, and I uh,
1: quote my friend from the blood bank, dear Selena, who answers the phone at three o'clock in the morning on Saturday, blood bank, Selena, and we have, I've been there at my institution for nine years now, and I just met her like two weeks ago. Nice. (laughs) I actually, because it was a good trauma, a stable one, I ran over to get the blood. And I walk in and I looked up and I said, oh, my God, you're Selena. And she says, Caleb from OR2. And I, I, I mean, we, we wanted to it was almost like we wanted to embrace each other. Nice. It was wonderful. And she said, I said, you're blood bank Selena. And she said, you're Caleb OR2. Because I always say we're calling from OR2, which is one of our trauma rooms. So um, that's how we do it. And it, our system works really well. It's
0: a true team effort. Yeah, it sounds like that would save you a lot of time, just in the whole platelet, the pool platelet. Right, so and so great. they pull them, and God yeah. bless Selena. Yeah, well, a little shout out to Selena there. Maybe she'll uh, <laughs> maybe she'll tune into our anesthesia podcast. So you have to let her know know about us. Um, and so, tell us about um, the warming of fluids. What oh. should be warmed? What shouldn't be warmed? What's your thoughts on that? So the bottom line is,
1: I refer to it as the trauma triad. But one of the three things that kill trauma patients that occurs are acidosis coagulopathy, and hypothermia. And hypothermia is something that we can deal with, and one of the best ways is to warm all fluids that go in. So the one caveat is, and almost all practitioners do know this, but people who don't do trauma or really don't give blood products, platelets are the one component that you do not warm. So you have to run it outside of your warming system. So you would use separate tubing, and it's filtered, and plug it just below your warming, outside your warming circuit, not before. So that even if the fluid going through is warmed, you're not warming the platelets directly.
0: Mm-hmm. And, what, and what does the warming of, of the platelets do? So, um, Oh, you have to ask me a question I don't know the answer to. So <laughs> we, can physi- edit. we can edit this There out. you go. Physi-
1: edit, uh, physiologically, I don't know exactly what it does, but it probably crenates them and prevents them from functioning appropriately. Yeah,
0: that's great. And uh, so, so FFP, fresh frozen plasma, how does the transfusion, uh, are, you, are you thawing plasma? Because I know some folks run into you know maybe smaller institutions maybe not having, with a massive transfusion protocol mm-hmm. initiation, having the, uh, the FFP thawed or thawed quick enough. I know that that can be troubling for some folks. Um, and I'm sure that does happen, but in
1: my entire career, and I have been a nurse for 29 years and doing anesthesia for coming up on 20 if we round up, it's never been a problem because I work at large institutions that have major blood banks and my little claim to fame is at Cook County Hospital has the first blood bank in the country. Dr. Fantas, and it's called the Fantas Blood Bank, invented blood banking pathology. So their blood bank was tremendous. Um, I've never, I've felt, I've had cold FFP because we, we transport it in a cooler, but I've never had to thaw my own or figure out how to do that. It just right. comes that way. You know, I'm spoiled, I, I'm, I'm rich and I like it that way. So um, it comes over and we just pour it in. We pu- always put that through the warmer
0: though, anyway. Great, great. All right, so we're working on a six to six to one ratio. Again, the one is a seven pack of pool platelets. And uh, I thought it was interesting in your talk, again, just to touch on, on crystalloids, you just mentioned it, but you know they don't have the O2 carrying capacity. Um, they don't stay in the intravascular space, crystalloids don't as, as long as the blood products do. And so uh, the phrase you said you wanna give essentially as little as you need and that you've seen massive transfusion protocols used where you've, you're having quite massive amounts or numbers of uh, blood products, units of blood products being given and relatively little crystalloid.
1: Right, I used an example where a few weeks ago I think the patient was a stab wound so it wasn't horrible and it's all relative when I say it wasn't horrible. Wasn't horrible means, you know, I'm not, I'm not half dead when the trauma's over. We gave about 50 units of blood products and I think the patient was in the OR for probably about four hours. We only gave uh, 1,200 cc's of crystalloid. So when you think about that, I mean, I can give 1,200 cc's of crystalloid to a lap coli, no problem, ding. Right. And we were running all this blood, that's all we gave because that's what he needed. He kept bleeding out, we kept filling him back up. And we finally got to a point where they stopped the bleeding and we filled him up. And he didn't need, you don't need a lot of crystalloid at that point. You just need the circulating volume, which is done by the blood products, and it carries oxygen
0: and clotting factors that's great so, so it worked and so you and you had mentioned in your talk kind of the stop points for uh, a massive transfusion protocol mm-hmm. uh being the three things you know they, they get better the surgeon calls it off they don't feel like it's needed or if you know the patient worsens and of course expires on the table or something
1: like right that, so and that those are i mean those are just the three sort of broad categories we use resuscitation endpoints also i mean you can measure What's the patient's hemoglobin? Mm-hmm. And we do that, and how we fixed the acidosis? And is there lactate coming down? Depending on what your institution uses, you can look at all those numbers, but you end the MTP when they don't need it anymore, which are those three things, dead, better, or the surgeon says, I don't wanna give any more blood.
0: Yeah, great. And uh, what's, where are we at with the you know, outcome measurements in massive mm-hmm. transfusion protocols? So that's a, um, and that's a really an excellent
1: question also. There are a number of studies out there that have the PROMIT study and the proper study that look at the effects of massive transfusion protocols. But the key piece is, they're still sort of new, and we have to look at big time outcome studies. Some of these, the um, PROMIT study, and I can't remember the acronym because it's very long and involved, and I, I joke about that we make up the names for it, but it looked at very specific things, reversal of um, your INR and looking at specific labs along the way and reversal of acidosis and percent of MI occurring during bleeding, but it doesn't say, did this trauma patient go home? Right. So things are favorable with the studies that are out there so far, but we have to wait for a big, big number outcome study.
0: That looks at discharge to home, for example. Right. So you're seeing, sign, you know, you're seeing, you know, trauma triads addressed. Folks are getting better. Yes. Uh, they're they're getting stabilized intraoperatively with massive transfusion protocols. Mm-hmm. They're uh, seeing stabilization in the ICUs after surgery. But we don't have those studies yet to say because of the imp- implementation of a massive transfusion protocol, it's actually leading to uh, discharge numbers. Absolutely. Discharge home. That's absolutely correct. Yes, yeah, so we're waiting on those. Okay. Uh, You talked about a couple of of drugs in your talk, Yes. Um, so factor 7a and tranexamic acid, so uh, you want to take one of those and run with it? Sure. Um, People have heard, and there was a lot of
1: little stuff about factor 7a. Unfortunately, it hasn't really been shown to be the magic bullet, so I think the big up-and-coming one is tranexamic acid. Um, People refer to it as TXA because it it's, I always used to pronounce it trans-examic, but there's no S in it. And then you sort of sound stupid like calling it the prostrate instead of the prostate. You know, you have, you know the crazy uncle, oh, I got prostrate. I'm like, no you don't, that's what you get in the heat. Uncle, uncle Bill, you nut job. So, <laughs> and <laughs> I am, I like this all the time. You nut job, it's a prostate. Oh, I got trans-examic acid. So if you get TXA, What the studies are actually showing about this, very positive results. It decreases bleeding and causes the clot to not lice. So that's the whole thing about trauma surgery is how do we stop the bleeding? Well, you have to have a gifted surgeon to sew up the hole or fix the crack. But physiologically, if they're not going to clot, it doesn't really matter. They'll just bleed around it or develop a huge hematoma from the sutures holding the blood in and that doesn't help anybody. So TXA actually helps clot form, which will stop the bleeding. Again, the big study was called the CRASH-2 trial. Very favorable, looks really good. But again, we have to wait for a real discharge-to-home outcome study and, uh, and see if it, it really pans out and works. It, I, I don't know how much it actually costs, but it's fairly expensive. It's not as expensive as factor 7a, which is a lot of money. Right. A full adult trauma dose for factor 7a is probably between $1,500 and $2,000. TXA, Tranexamic <laughs> Acid, is probably less than a grand. Right. But when you're talking about trying to save someone's life and using a massive transfusion protocol and all the technology in a level one trauma center, What's $1,000 or $2,000? Sure. Are you all using Factor 7 at Temple? We use it on a very selective um, case basis. And sometimes we actually use it in our neurotrauma when patients, you know, the 80-year-old who fell on Plavix and with an epidural hematoma. Things aren't looking too good for granny right now. But to assist them, sometimes we do give Factor
0: 7a. if they really think that it will improve the outcome. And and TXA has a role outside of just trauma care. I mean, Uh, I know that that ortho services have picked that up in a huge way to help control bleeding and joint replacements and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So there have been a number
1: of orthopedic studies. And also, along with using an MTP for trauma, other indications could be um, obstetrical hemorrhaging, Mm -hmm. uh, big vascular cases, liver transplants, things like that. So as you move that over, that TXA could also be used in those situations. Anywhere where you don't want the clot to start to lice at the acute period,
0: it appears that TXA might be able to do that for you or us. That's great. And just to mention here for folks that are listening, uh, the parameters of that are, there's, there's a time component and then and then some, some basic kind of easily to remember dosage right. uh, things. So you wanna touch so on this. So the those? numbers are along the lines of As early
1: as possible, tranexamic acid should be given within an hour of the trauma. It still appears to be efficacious within three hours, Uh but over three hours from the initial event, it actually has some negative outcomes. And there is a calculation, and unfortunately at the top of my head, I can't tell you the milligram per kilogram, but in most adult trauma patients, so we're talking about the 70 kilogram adult, Mm -hmm. you give a gram, at the start of your procedure, the trauma uh, operation, and then, one, and you give it over about 10 minutes, mm-hmm. and then you give a gram to infuse over eight hours,
0: mm-hmm. is the sort of the listed protocol that comes from the CRASH-2 study. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing this, uh, are you seeing TXA being given uh, pre-hospital uh, on trauma patients at all, and with temple or shock trauma mm-hmm. or other places you've been?
1: Well, I've been gone from shock trauma for a while, so TXA wasn't in vogue at that t- sure, the time ma'am. that I was actively working there. And currently in Philadelphia, um, the, medic, the Philadelphia fire paramedics do not use TXA in trauma. Not to say that they won't or that it could soon happen or come up, but the major trauma centers all around Temple, it, it's not a
0: routine right now. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. Maybe I, maybe I can help change that. Sure, sure. When when do you reach for? So you talked about Factor Seven uh, A and TXA. When do you reach for things like DDAVP or Amicar in trauma surgery?
1: The, again, an excellent question. So, the crash tube study did look at the use of some of the other adjunct agents that people associate to decrease bleeding: DDAVP and what was that last one you said? Uh, Amicar. Amicar. Yeah. So Amicar, we all know from cardiac surgery. Uh the few studies that are out there, no real positive indication. They don't make a difference. They're not the magic bullet and they don't really work for what we need them to do in trauma.-. Uh-huh.
0: So no. So you stick, stick to the basics, massive transfusion protocol, TXA, maybe factor 7A, uh, and then go from there. Correct, great, great. You mentioned earlier briefly that point of care testing, including some interesting technologies that have arisen relatively recently, the TEG and, and Rotem, to where you can actually test multiple factors of clotting and, and how that's going for patients. So speak to that a little bit. Absolutely. So
1: as we do a massive transfusion protocol, we say, oh, look, it's working. The, the patient's more stable, they're stop not really bleeding as much. And so what we say is that, oh, the massive transfusion protocol because it adds the FFP, which is clotting factor, and then adds the platelets, which we obviously know we need to form a clot. So how do we know if it's really working or where we are in the amount of good work the clotting is forming? The TEG, the thromboelastogram is a direct measure of the clotting process and the clot itself. It's actually very cool. It gives you a, a graph and some numbers that are associated with it. And then there's a, a chart that goes with it. And it says if A equals whatever number, then you should give more FFP, or you should give cryoprecipitate, or you should call a funeral home. That's like B. So it's, <laughs> really, it's, on, it's you know, on there. I'm horrible, but there you go. I put it out there, there for you. Yeah. you. So it gives you a recipe to follow based on what the clot looks like. Uh-huh. And then also if the clot lyses or doesn't lice or if it doesn't form all the way, it looks at the actual clotting process. So it's pretty cool. There's a little hands on. So you have to have someone available to actually do it. Right. So if you're a big, busy trauma center, most likely you have a, some kind of stat lab and there's someone available to do it. That's one piece. Also, the technology is very expensive, so you might not even have it. We happen to also, at Temple Hospital, be a transplant center that does livers, and that's one of the primary labs we look at along the transplant process. The Rotem is thromboelastography, and it's nuances between them. The technology is a little bit different, and the outcome, the little diagram you get might be a little bit different, but it's doing the same thing. It's looking at clot formation, how long, strength of clot, lysis of the clot, and it has the same, the numbers are different and the little codes are different, but A equals, oh, if it's less than this, give this drug, give this uh, blood product. Right. And it's something that I think we should all pay attention to and people should start to read the basic articles so they understand the basic concepts behind them, because soon I think it will become routine. Sure,
0: technological advance that hopefully can help us shape massive transfusion protocols? Kind of on the tail end, you get this huge, massive transfusion protocol up and going, but then how do you make that decision to either tailor that transfusion protocol to that patient? You know, do you need more FFP? Do you need these other you know products, cryo, that kind of stuff? And then what are your stop points for that? So kind of some, some other measurements beyond just an ABG and, and that kind of stuff that can exactly. actually help you understand and how to tailor. That's exactly correct. That's great, that's great. That's great. Your talk was fascinating to listen to. I hate that the, folk, it was also highly entertaining. I hate that folks uh, on the podcast weren't here to listen to that, but one of the things that you ended with I thought was uh, paramount that we couldn't leave today without addressing is that you said that the most significant advance in trauma care is something that everyone has access to and it's communication within the OR. Exactly. So speak to your thoughts on that. This is one of my,
1: I have a, well, I have about 5,000 soap boxes, but, Communication is one of the things that I, I purport in my in my daily life, in my work life, in my love life, in my soap opera life, which is my secret identity. If you have clear and open communication, almost any problem can be solved. I think it used to be in the old days, we remember sort of, I don't know, watching or knowing Marcus Welby, the doctor in charge, whatever he said we did, And you avert averted eye contact and you never question their authority. Now, I believe, and I personally do believe this, we're expected to question. You know, question authority, put your fist up and bow your head. Don't just take it on the chin. We are, I am the certified registered nurse anesthetist delivering this trauma anesthetic. I need clear and open communication. And what's really wonderful where I work Specifically, I mean, all of our trauma surgeons are really top-notch, but our director of trauma surgery is a, a young woman who's very tough, and we really like her, and she wears um, combat boots. That's her normal, so she can kick you in the butt if you need it. And she's tiny. She's 5'2 uh, and weighs like 100 pounds, but she's 6'8 when she's in the operating room. And she will have direct communication with me. She knows my name. She calls me Caleb. I probably could use her first name, but I, that's just not who I am. And I, I call her doctor. Her name is Dr. Goldberg. People know her. She's very famous. And she will say, we have one, two, three. We have a hole in the aorta. We have a ding in the right kidney and the liver has a rent in the upper lobe. I know what's going on now. Right. And she says, how are you? And so I always say, I'm fine, thanks, how are you? And then (laughs) I know what she means. I never respond to her with the patient's fine because that doesn't tell you anything. For some other schlub surgeon doing a lap coli, how's the patient? I was like, why do you care? Just take the happy out and I'll take care of the patient. That's sort of what I think, because I'm cocky. And I say the patient's fine and then they don't say anything else. When I'm talking to a trauma surgeon in a critical situation, the open communication is, Dr. Goldberg, right now our blood pressure is stable he's still tachycardic and he's very acidotic. So once you get the bleeding under control, we will continue to fill him up here, utilize the mass transfusion protocol and we will work on his acidosis. Boom. She knows what we're gonna do, I know what she's gonna do and then all of a sudden the patient becomes hypotensive and then she says, oh, sorry Caleb, we were lifting the heart up. Oh, oh okay, okay. When they put it back down, everything's back to normal, we're good. But with clear and open communication in that situation, it's all about taking care of the patient. We have a circulator that I work with every Saturday at Temple Hospital. She's been there forever. She knows everything. She is able to do trauma circulation like nobody's business. I'd put her up against anybody in the world. Night Nancy, because she works nights, and her name is Nancy. She can, because she's responsible for everybody, her primary concern is the patient. But if I don't have something I need to take care of the patient, she can get it for me. And when the surgeon wants something and tells the scrub and the scrub doesn't have it, she can get that. And then the phone is ringing. Oh, and she's also in charge of the whole OR. So the phone rings again and she's got another, she has open communication with it. Caleb, you're gonna have to call the blood bank. Caleb, the blood bank called, the FFP will be, or the platelets will be available in five minutes. I've called the SICU, the trauma unit, the bed will be coming down, we're ready to go. Do you need an oxygen tank? If I don't have time, she will call the anesthesia tech and we have a tank on the bed. It's all about communication. We've been communicating since, I don't know, the first atom exploded. But sometimes the communication doesn't work. It's not clear and open. Right. That's the key piece. You must be clear and open communication. I know that was a very, very long answer. But the key to success for
0: taking care of anything we do is clear and open communication. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you for that. So we've talked about quite a bit today, and we've hit on topics that we could delve uh, much deeper into. I mean, all of this. So we've kind of done a nice uh, skim of some of the critical things in trauma care, um, from massive transfusion protocols to you know room setup and preparation to the you know the trauma triad or lethal triad: acidosis, coagulopathy, hypothermia, um, through TXA and all different kinds of things. Is there anything in that or anything else that you want to emphasize uh, to anesthesia providers out there on trauma care before we sound off for today?
1: Perfect, the other key thing, and I, I sort of let this out, but as nurse anesthetists, we are very flexible and very capable individuals in dealing with any type of surgery, but especially in trauma, part of when the trauma patient's coming up is you need to do another quick glance at your machine to make sure that it's still an operative condition and you have to check for suction. And I know that this is why someone was even saying this, but when you don't have suction in a trauma, it's gonna be the time that you absolutely have to have it. Mm -hmm. So in your room setup, it's really, when I say ABC, that's take care of the patient. Your room ABC is make sure your machine is there, that you have something for an airway and you have suction. Everything else we can make up. And my final three things I tell everybody is if it's wet and sticky and it's not yours, don't touch it. Trauma is no accident. The life you save may be your own. It's simple as wearing a seatbelt and not drinking and driving. An airway is not the most important thing. Pause for dramatic effect, it is the only thing. So there you go, ABC, Trauma is Fun and Easy, and I appreciate this
0: podcast. Thank you. Caleb, thank you so much for coming. My, My absolute pleasure, thank you. All right, great, we'll see you again.